Welcome to Getting Loud on the Cloud, a podcast for companies who are hosting their largest, most complex workloads on the cloud. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Getting Loud on the Cloud. I'm Derek Swanson, Chief Technology Officer for Silk Technologies and host of this podcast. And with me today is Kellen Gorman, who is an Oracle subject matter expert for Microsoft and works with Microsoft Azure, helping people to migrate their workloads, their big databases, their big Oracle workloads from their current environment, either be on-prem or in another cloud, over onto Microsoft Azure. So very excited to have her with us today. So welcome, Kellen, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great. So today we wanted to talk a little bit about, of course, some cloud subjects that are near and dear to our heart, mostly about how to get these big workloads into the cloud, the challenges and problems that we face, some considerations that you want to look at before you engage in these big migration efforts, where you want to land these big workloads, where you want them to live, because wherever you put them, if you can get them there successfully, they're going to live there for a very long time. And there's quite a few considerations to take into account before you undertake these big, big, what we would call extensive maneuvers that have a lot of moving parts to them and are complex and sometimes considered very, very risky. So Kellen's here, and what she does all the time is help people understand and navigate these difficult waters and answers all their questions. So we're going to pick her brain a little bit today and talk about a a few different subjects on how, where, and why, and when you'd want to move these things and how to do it. All right. So without too much further ado, Kellen, uh, shall we begin? Should we jump right in? Sure. Okay. So some of the options, as you know, for moving database workloads into the cloud is people have to consider whether they want to use a managed solution, which we call DB paths or platform as a service or database platform as a service or just simply paths, kind of a managed service in the cloud where people can move their workloads and then kind of the cloud provider gives them a platform that kind of does a lot of the stuff that they were used to doing with their own people or, or using some sort of partner to do managed services for them. So the other option, of course, is to just move it straight onto the cloud using infrastructure as a service. So let's talk a little bit about the option called PaaS, Platform as a Service, and some of the considerations or limitations to think of and to consider before moving workloads there. Yeah, it is an interesting conversation. I have it every single day. I think PaaS solutions are definitely an opening to a conversation, but these monolithic Oracle workloads have been around for, you know, we talked about them starting out in Oracle 7. Uh, you know, they're like, I started out in 7.3.4, and you got Oracle 9.9 and 10G and all these other ones that over a period of time end up with a lot of history and a lot of weight involved with them. Folks try to move them to, you know, a PaaS solution. And not even about refactoring them. They just want to bring them into a managed service or even Oracle. And they find out once they start looking at the limitations within them that they can't. Infrastructure as a service ends up being their landing zone. And it's absolutely important as you're looking at these databases to identify the workload, find out the requirements for not just the limits in the size of the database, but the megabytes per second throughput. Throughput is a big deal. And, you know, a lot of people focus on how much CPU does it need, how much memory. But we find out that throughput is a really big limiter on what you can do with the database. It's not just the PLSQL code and the applications connected to it. Panel and I talked about this a little while ago about people identifying just the database and not everything that's connected to it. All of this creates that data gravity or that database gravity that says Oracle is not going to move easily. 
And so anytime that you can limit what you have to shift, what you have to change, that's going to make it easier. And that's where lift, shift, and we call it the evolve, works a lot better when you're going to the cloud. If you can change less as you're shifting to the cloud and then taking it apart and doing it bite-sized pieces, that seems to be a much better and more successful engagement. So path solutions, great for Greenfield, great as they mature, maybe taking on more migrations to refactors. But uh, initially, most, much of it is lift and shift into infrastructure as a service. Great. So you mentioned a few things I want to clarify a little bit. So initially, you talked a little bit about a refactor. So we have a database that's sitting, let's just say, on-prem, and it's got some business logic behind it, Oracle database with a bunch of business logic. To just move that straight into PaaS, do people have to take into account the feature function limitations of that PaaS, or, or is it just, can you just move the whole thing as is without having to change anything that you have today? There will be considerable changes that are required for those, and it's not just at the database level, but even the uh, application level. If you're taking like any business suite environment and bringing it into OCI, you have to recognize that unless you do infrastructure as a service, there's going to be limitations on what modules that can come over. There's going to be limitations on custom modules. There may be limits on how many transactions you're allowed before you start getting charged. When we start realizing that as a customer, as a cloud provider, you recognize that infrastructure as a service provides you a lot more flexibility. And for uh-huh. these large monolithic environments for Oracle, it is really central to the conversation. Gotcha. Okay, so that makes sense. So you have to consider the feature function that you need to have for your application and see if that's even possible, if it's even available with the PaaS solutions that you're considering to start with. Second yes. question I had. Yeah was around, you mentioned throughput. So throughput is a performance metric, right? How much data can you move? So speak to us a little bit more about what does a throughput limitation look like in paths? Um, most folks will look at a database as in a platform versus looking at the workload itself. If you have an Oracle database, let's say it's leaving exadata, and it requires yeah. 5,000 megs per second in throughput, you position a solution, a path solution, let's say, that has only 100 megs per second capability, yeah. it's never going to work. That's not going to work, yeah. You design it and refactor it, you still got 5,000 megs per second you got to deal with. So even if you do refactor it, it does. it's not like the workload goes away. You still have to plan not only for feature functionality of the PaaS landing zone, the application you're going to move it to, but the amount of actual performance available from that PaaS. Because like you said, if, if you need 5,000 megabytes per second, which is a pretty significant load, but a lot of these big tier one workloads can push, you know, multiple thousands of megabytes per second in throughput. And your target paths can support 100 or 200 as opposed to thousands. It's it's never going to work no matter what, correct? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, even if you do a complete rewrite, a complete refactoring of the system, it's going to be almost impossible to bring it down from 5,000 down to 100. It's common also that this workload probably has optimization that's been built in to the platform it started with. And once you originally or you originally refactored, you have to consider there may be an impact performance, which means an increase in throughput, not a decrease. So that should be expected. Yeah, that makes sense. Because the, the platform that you're coming from, these vendors have been working on it for many decades. They've tuned it and tweaked it. They've squeezed a lot of efficiencies out of it already. When you move to a more generic 
platform as a service in the cloud, you kind of lose a lot of those uh, efficiencies and enhancements, right? So what might have been, let's say, 100 on-prem is now going to be 120 or 150 maybe in the cloud because you lose the efficiencies that the vendor had given you on-prem. Is that what you're saying? Well, many of these are even, you know, proprietary custom apps that they've built. You think about uh, yeah. the tribal knowledge that went into that for customers to learn how to optimize it. These are folks that have been working on it for, let's say, you know, four, seven, 15 years. They understand the complexities that they're dealing with and have optimized based on that. And when you refactor it, that time has to be reinvested into it to learn how to optimize. Sometimes it's even when you're working off data, you may absolutely think you have the solution and you test it out and it doesn't play forward. If you're talking about an entire platform that you need to put in that kind of time investment, it's going to take time. Gotcha. Makes perfect sense. Now, the last question I wanted to ask you is you mentioned Greenfield. So some people, let's just define Greenfield. And then, of course, it's its cousin Brownfield. Talk about where PaaS fits better in these two types of scenarios. Can you elaborate on that a, a bit? Brownfield would be an existing project that you're bringing over. Different than list and shift of saying that this is already an existing system. It's already been running and we can bring it into and not so much refactor as much as just redesign the database and connect it to the existing app. That one also has definitely degradation on the performance because your application is also part of that optimization process. Nothing should be left off the table. Greenfield is a brand new product. They are starting from the ground up. They are designing it. If you're designing for the cloud and you choose that native platform, that's commonly going to be the best solution. Right. I do have Greenfield products that are working on Oracle and Azure for infrastructures of service today. But at the same time, if you can save that Oracle licensing and reinvest that into other products, why not? Sure. So we have a lot of customers that are going to choose PostgreSQL or Azure SQL or MySQL to find a solution that's going to save them money that they can invest into services or other, you know, other solutions. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense too. Oftentimes we talk to customers and they're trying to figure out which applications can they modernize or rewrite, which applications do they just want to lift and shift because maybe they're they're not long for the world, right? Maybe they're going to deprecate them in a year or two. And then some of the big, big ones, they're trying to figure out, I need to keep this as is, I need to move it as is, and it's going to stay this way for a very long time. So lots of different things to take into account there. As you mentioned, maybe you can move something that's brownfield, and then the evolve part of it kind of shard off pieces as you go over the next you know few years to carve off functionality onto other elements, like you said, managed SQL or Postgres or something like that. Oracle is schema centralized, you know, where you start talking about SQL Server and MySQL that are very user database. Yeah. You have a tendency to isolate by user database, where for Oracle, we isolate by schema level in a massive database. It makes more sense to identify those isolated schemas and start slicing those off after you've lifted and shifted them and to start refactoring at that level. It just works much better. It's much more successful. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I think a lot of people probably don't consider that as much. It's a different approach when you're talking about, you know, MySQL or Postgres as opposed to Oracle. Uh, You did mention something else I want you to expand on now. We talked a little bit, or you mentioned a little bit about repurposing Oracle licenses and the great scary beast of Oracle licensing that uh, everyone loves so much. So let's talk a little bit about the options you have to move Oracle workloads into the cloud what you can do with that licensing, how do you optimize your license costs, and how do you try to maybe reduce your exposure when it comes to that? So what are some of the considerations around Oracle licensing in the cloud? It is a common conversation that I have with folks. They will hear there's a two-for-one penalty going to a third-party cloud instead of going into OCI. And that's based all around hyper-threading or multi-threaded vCPU. The thing is, for most of these cloud vendors, you can disable that hyper-threaded or multi-threaded vCPU and go to single-threading. At that point, it's one-for-one. So again, this can be a moot point. The second thing is that most on-prem environments, 85% of them, in fact, that we have done assessments on, you find out that they're over-provisioned. The over-provisioning happens just naturally. As we as Oracle VBAs, we know that we're going to size out our environment or when we do capacity planning, they say, you need to run this for the next five years on this hardware. It's going to be natural for us to think about that padding and to pad for those peaks and everything else. So it is over-provisioned to start out. We know that in five years when we come to our manager and say, hey, it's time for us to buy new hardware, our manager, there's a high percentage chance that they're going to come back and say, we don't have the money in the budget, you need to run another two years. So we're good with that because we've padded even more. 85% of our customers, when we do the sizing assessment, by lifting and shifting the workload instead of the original hardware, yeah. we find that they will do either one-for-one on the licensing oh, wow. when we double it. That's amazing. It is. It's quite large. Or they will have savings. I had a customer this week that they were nice enough, even though they want to do a one-for-one comparison on their OCI environment that they're bringing over to Azure. I talked them into giving me their AWRs for their exadata. It was a four-node, 184-OCPU environment, a core-licensed environment. Um, When I went and licensed the actual databases, the requirement for those, they only needed 56 vCPU to run, which means if you double that, it's 112. This literally brought almost $30 million back onto the table that they were paying in overages in Oracle licensing. That's a lot of money. And that's just on one environment. Wow. One exadata. This wow. incredible amount of money that can be left on the table if you don't right size it before you bring it into the cloud. You think about the gift of the cloud, you can scale as you need. So you should do a sizing assessment each year, figure out what you need and scale and relicense then. We have annual requirements for updating our licenses with Oracle anyway. Why not right size? Right. Well, that's a lot of cheddar. I mean, the Oracle licensing cost is, is, of course, going to be your biggest costs, your biggest recurring costs, but it makes a lot of sense. I want you, I want to go back and elaborate on something that you mentioned because I don't want people to skip over it because this is kind of the crux of the argument around how to reduce or contain Oracle licensing costs. When Oracle moves to the cloud, there's kind of this generic tax that people assume that they have to pay, right? You mentioned it's a two-for-one tax. So compared to a a single on-prem license for Oracle that's running on Exa or somewhere on-prem, if you move that into the cloud, you have to double your Oracle licensing. But that's not necessarily the case because what you're suggesting is that's around uh, VM shapes in the cloud 
that have hyper-threading enabled. So they have multi-threaded capabilities going on. Now, you can turn that off in the cloud, and you don't necessarily have to buy a VM shape that has hyper-threading enabled. And you can also leverage, you know, there's lots of different VM types where you can just use a one-for-one on the core rather than enabling hyper-threading. I myself not a huge fan of a hyper-threading because I think it works really well for applications that are specifically written to take advantage of multi-threaded, hyper-threaded environments. But if you don't, it's kind of hit and miss. I mean, you sure it's not like you're getting two, it's not like you're getting a full extra CPU for no cost, right? It's it's just kind of a we call it 1.9 is what it is around. And for some OLTP loads in that, you'll see it come down to about 1.25. And those yeah. are the ones that I often recommend disabling it. Again, I'm very much about the workload. I do have some customers that they may be in EDU or in government that have very strict licensing capabilities yeah. that they can have. And they'll say, I, I can only have four VCT or four core licenses. I can't have anything more. And I'll say, do a four VCTU or we'll do actually an eight VCTU and we'll disable hyperthreading and they're fine. You know, we will look into these solutions to get them what they need that meets it. So it's one for one their Oracle licensing and simplify the solution so they're not battling with Oracle. So that's brilliant. And I'm glad you uh, clarified that. So you can get into, you know, effective licensing by doing a license review, a workload review, and those things kind of add up to talk about, to describe the next subject I wanted to ask you about, which was how do we go about properly right-sizing the Oracle footprint into the cloud? What are the things that we need to look at there? And we've just talked about a few of them. So let's continue with that. So the automatic workload repository is excellent for this. A lot of folks will come back and say, well, I use that for performance tuning. I use that for optimization, you know, and troubleshooting. The truth is, it is still workload data. And we are not trying to identify the exact IO or anything like that. We have assessment tools along with sizing that we've done over in Azure that says, we know there's averages, we know there's aggregates in this. We are going to figure out what bucket you fall into. So when you start looking at a VM and say, I need four, eight, 16, 32 vCPU, if I'm off by two vCPU, you're still going to end up in the same bucket. So that's really important when you're starting to size this out and realize the AWR can provide this data. It doesn't ask people to run anything different. You need to work with the DBAs to find out Is this a high workload period? If I'm looking at your eight days or your 60 days that you have in your AWR, does that contain this? If it doesn't, and we can, of course, identify the peaks, then we say, what does your peak workload? We have your workload here. What does a peak look like? We can fudge those numbers and simulate that to figure out what sizing we need. That sizing we can then translate into Azure values and say, this is the VM you fall into. This is the type of storage you need. You can use premium SSD versus you have a high IO workload and we're going to bring in something like Silk. We're going to bring in a partner that can help you migrate this because you have complex RPOs, RTOs you need to meet. These are the things that give us the success rate that we we have met in Azure for our small team by finding out this is what you need. We're going to need that for you. I guess personalizing what a customer needs versus just trying to come up with a simplified solution that just says one size fits all, it's not true. Oracle's been meeting these demands for customers for generations now. We need to have framework that just says, this is how you do a size assessment and per that workload. Here's the matrix that says you fit into for that size, that bucket. And it's worked quite well. 
Yeah, and I can see that. Obviously, Oracle, very, very powerful platform. A lot of customization goes into it, a lot of business logic. It's, it doesn't really fit in kind of a one-size-fits-all offering. That's part of the reason why it's so difficult to fit Oracle into a DBPaaS solution, because it is so complex, leaving aside the performance requirements. I mean, besides performance, even if it could fit into a PaaS performance-wise, it probably, as you mentioned earlier, would lose a lot of the feature functionality. Business logic would have to be rewritten, uh, refactored, et cetera, et cetera. And now you add a lot of time and complexity and difficulty in, even if you could ever get it working the way you want it to. What you're suggesting is come in, do the analysis, use the AWR reports, analyze the workload, right-size the whole thing for performance on an infrastructure as a service platform, get the licensing right-sized as well, and that's going to give you your best chance for success. Absolutely. And for those customers that are saying, you know, I don't want to manage that infrastructure. I don't want to have to patch my databases and all these other things they're concerned about. I'm with them. I'm one of those that I'm, I'm not real big about tedious tasks, the ADHD kidding me. <laughs> I absolutely recommend doing Enterprise Manager. You put one in the Azure cloud and you bring in the lifecycle and the cloud management pack and patch the OSs, patch the databases automate all of that. Yeah. Put in corrective actions, put in your metric extensions. And you can even feed that into, you know, log analytics inside Azure and then feed it into your cloud um, admin. There's a lot of things that you can do to make life easier. And that's why we've created, you know, white papers that feed this information in, explain, you know, how to do this A to Z. This is why we're we're kind of ramping up those CSAs within Azure so that they can do this more successfully. We have a you know, straight framework to make life easier for folks as they come over to Azure because we do understand that Oracle is part of the data state yeah. and it has to have a holistic view that's part of this. No, totally get that. And I think of all the companies out there, Microsoft's best position in the enterprise space, because of course, Microsoft's been in the enterprise for decades and decades and decades. No one would argue that. And they understand the importance of you know an enterprise toolkits, enterprise workflows, and enterprise support around all of these things. And it's nice, you know, compared to some of your competitors who aren't as enterprise or some competitors who are enterprise but lack a lot of the other ancillary services that you provide, you're really in an excellent position to provide, as you said, a kind of a holistic approach to moving these big Oracle workloads from where they reside today on-prem, where they've been for a while, off of their dedicated hardware and getting to leverage the cloud and getting all of the benefits of the cloud around governance and security and uh, maintenance operations, unifying all that stuff. So it seems like getting this right size and, and lifted and shifted into an infrastructure as a service platform on Azure seems like a pretty solid option right now. Oh, it is. And I think another important thing is just that aspect of our partners, that we work hand in hand with them, that their products really do come into play with a lot of these high IO workloads. Most customers don't recognize that. They may see what is there, but not realize that it's all kind of a puzzle set puzzle piece that have to fit together. And when it comes to Oracle and those high IO workloads, when we start talking about things like Silk, we start talking about choosing the right VM and getting the right disk or OS to placing data files correctly, when looking at latency and figuring out how to address that, that's extremely important to success rate. Most customers that come back and say, I can't run this workload on Azure, you find out that it's because they don't have that framework or they haven't made those, I guess, done that research to find out the right solution for it. 
Yeah, it's it's all about for Oracle certainly that AWR and right sizing it, and that's uh, what you do. I think your job is to help people understand, analyze, and properly process what's in an AWR to get it right sized. So I want to finish up here. I I wanted to circle back to the beginning. We were talking about lift and shift. We've been talking about lift and shift. And you mentioned a a third aspect of lift and shift called lift, shift, and evolve. So help me understand what we're talking about when we've got our Oracle database lifted and shifted onto the cloud. What What do I do with it next so that I can continue to gain the benefits from the cloud? And how do I gain the additional benefits from all of the pieces that the cloud has to offer. Because a lot of people think if I if I go onto infrastructure as a service, I only get to use a small part of the cloud. So let's talk a little bit about how to capture the rest of the benefits of the cloud around this evolve concept. Yeah, Oracle many times houses some of the most critical data for the data estate. Part of the reason that it's seen as an anchor that it's holding back a lot of these cloud, you know, projects that we get Oracle into the cloud. And then from there, connected with the other data that we are able to, it doesn't have to leave Oracle, keep that in mind, that we are able to connect that data and do more with it, no matter if it's just bringing in Power BI. Many of these folks have been working in S-Base and Hyperion and other products that use Excel deeply. You introduce them to Power BI and they just, their eyes light up. They're going, it's the same ribbon that I worked with Excel, and suddenly they're doing analytics at a level you've never seen before. That they can also be introduced to our machine learning tools and artificial intelligence. Again, very similar interface, and suddenly they're doing things at a low-code or no-code solution that you never thought possible. That you can then take that Oracle data, again, very critical data, and bring it into a data link and hook it up to, to Synapse. Again, Oracle doesn't have to leave Oracle and you can still get more value from it. And the data isn't just doing what it did yesterday, it's doing more tomorrow. Okay, so that's an excellent example right there. So you don't don't have to migrate the actual data out of Oracle and replatform it somewhere. You can keep your Oracle database, same feature functionality, just as good performance as you were getting on-prem. And then after you now have it running in Azure, you can plug in additional tool sets that will take that data using ELT or ETL functions and run them through a whole host of other services, you know, AI, ML, engines, et cetera, like you were mentioning, right? Yes. And it allows you to evolve that data. Again, also for these customers that say, I want to start bringing down my Oracle footprint. I'm paying a lot in licensing. We can find optimization capabilities. Every new VM allows us to do more megabytes per second. As we get more throughput, we find a lot of times we need less vCPU, which means less core licensing, which again saves customers money. We've done these tests. I know I've done these benchmark tests. I see this. The other thing is that they may start slicing off those smaller schemas and bring them into a past solution, refactor those, they can bring down their footprint again in Oracle licensing. They may decide, you know, for these critical apps, I need to keep them in Oracle. There's no way to rewrite them. You know, they're only vendor supported. But over years, people kept plugging in other modules and yeah. other apps and other, yep. you know, little pieces of this. They can start separating it out fully but surely in a vault. Yeah, you make a great point. All the little pieces and ancillary things that kind of get tacked on over the years, you can kind of start to unwind that big ball of string, but slowly, you're still in the cloud. You can take your time doing it. What you've done is you've de-risked this whole enterprise, right? So. You keep the pieces that you want. You can kind of unwind the pieces that you want to evolve. As you mentioned, you can plug additional services in. 
Sounds like a really good solution. The success rate is incredible on these. We see it over and over again. For a lot of my large customers, like I said, they start with one or two and all of a sudden they see the, the, you know, the potential of this. And all of a sudden I'm migrating an entire data state. <laughs> Very nice. Okay. Well, that was excellent. That was a ton of great information. Thank you so much, Kellen, for joining us. I really appreciate it. And that's uh, it for this episode of Getting Loud on the Cloud. I'm Derek Swanson, and I'll be back again soon with more discussions around other various cloud topics. If you have something you'd like me to talk about, drop us a note at Silk, and I'll either tackle it myself or I'll bring in someone much smarter than me, like Kellen, who will join us and we'll talk about uh, your particular subject of interest. So thanks again for listening, and we will talk again soon. Bye, y'all. Getting Loud on the Cloud is sponsored by Silk, the database supercharger on the cloud. Want to get the fast performance your databases need on the cloud? The Silk Cloud Platform can help. Learn more at silk.us. Thanks for listening.